1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.
0: Welcome to the New
1: Books Network.
0: Welcome to New Books and Women's History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jane Semecka, professor of history at Brookdale Community College. Today, we'll be discussing a new book by Dr. Steven Veter titled The Queerness of Home, Gender, Sexuality, and the Politics of Domesticity After World War II, published by University of Chicago Press. Dr. Veter is an assistant professor of history and director of the Public History Initiative at Cornell University. His research examines the social practices and politics of everyday life in the 20th century United States, with a focus on intersections of gender, sexuality, race, and ethnicity. He has also contributed to many public history projects, including the exhibition AIDS at Home, Art and Everyday Activism at the Museum of the City of New York. It is a pleasure to welcome Dr. Veeder to the show. Welcome, Stephen.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: I was wondering if you could start the interview by telling us a little bit about how this book came about.
1: You know, so the queerness of home really looks at the different ways that LGBTQ people navigated domestic life after World War II as a way of thinking kind of more broadly about the politics and everyday practices of home life and sort and 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 the ways that queer people, queer and trans people adapted them and resisted them and reinvented them. The, but the project I'll say really started when I was a graduate student. I mean, really the beginnings of the project were when I was a graduate student at Harvard in a, in a gender history seminar with Nancy Cott. Um, and I was really interested in that time in a kind of new literature that was emerging on food and gender history. Um, it was partly inspired by um, the Schlesinger Library at Radcliffe has a huge cookbook collection that Barbara Haber amassed over many years. And so I got interested in, in this new kind of this new work thinking about how did gender and food fit together in ways that also challenged you know the challenged theories about the constraints and limits of domesticity, um, especially aligned with feminist labor history um, and so that kind of that led me to start thinking about these larger questions about really what what is home what so what 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 are the the meanings of home, the significance of home in everyday life, what are the political meanings of home and how might we challenge the ideas of home specifically as simply private? Because one of the things that I think became really clear to me in work by by historians like Alice Kessler Harris was that home is not simply a private space, but one that is kind of what I say in the book, a portal to to the public, that we, that so many feminist and queer historians had really reiterated a kind of separate spheres, ideology about home where, you know, reiterating this idea that the home was a private space, there was women's space that was distinct from a public sphere. And I really thought that there were interesting ways that the food history and gender histories were challenging that. Um, this was also a moment, of course, when a lot of same-sex marriage cases were moving through the courts and there was a lot of debate among queer study scholars and queer theorists about whether or not marriage was actually the goal um, that queer people should be pursuing, Right? was didn't in fact queer people want to have marriage and be like everybody else, um, or did they wanna reinvent what home and family looked like? But I felt that there was a way that a lot of the debates about marriage and what Lisa Dugan was calling homonormativity um, sort of tended to conflate domestic life with marriage. And so I was interested in trying to figure out how to put feminist theory and queer theory into conversation. Um, So that led me, I think, to begin to sort of look for kind of evidence of look for evidence of queer domestic life over time. Um, One of the other things that I really saw when I began to really read queer history more widely was that there was such a strong bias against private domestic life, um, because so much of LGBTQ history was written with with the understanding that public space um, was where the action was, right? To thinking about something like the, the Stonewall riots as a kind of pivot in queer history, or thinking about activism by ACT UP, right? Thinking sort of about people making themselves visible, just the very, you know, the very you know, gay liberation slogan of coming out of the closet, right, out of the closets into the street, right, that there's a great deal of, I think, suspicion about home as a a closeted space. And so I also really began to want to think about how to challenge that. Then I think there was the next question about where was I actually going to find the evidence to tell this story?
0: Right. Yeah. And, you know, the title that you use, the queerness of home. I can suggest a couple of things. So, can you talk a little bit about how you chose that title and what you think it means?
1: So, I, I think the title has two meanings. I think so. I think one is a kind of a kind of historical argument, essentially that um, I guess these are sort of two paradoxes, right? Um, so, the first is this idea that we don't that I think historians have not expected to find queer people at home. Um, or have not expected to find queer history at home. And so one of the basic claims of the book is that there is a rich history of LGBTQ home life. There is a queer home, a history of the queer home that has been, I think that's been waiting to be uncovered and, and discussed. The other meaning of the title, the other paradox is that home is a lot Queerer than people have necessarily thought. That the way that domesticity, right, um, has been talked about is as, a, as an ideology, right? An ideology that is a site of, const- you know, that that encourages a strict public-private divide, that encourages, um, that constrains women, especially, um, that is a, that essentially is a site of repression. Um, and that what I wanted to show is that the ideology of home is distinct from the practices of home. And if we actually shift from talking about domestic life away from the ideals of home life to the actual practices of home life, what we find is that home is a lot messier than we expect. It's a lot queer than we expect. And you know, and I think about this, I thought um, there's a quote I, in the book um, by from anthropologist, Mary Douglas, um, from her really wonderful article, the idea, the idea of of home, where she says that the home is the realization of ideas. And what I think that means is that like the way that we construct home is the realization of our fantasies, of our ideals. But as, but for Douglas, also, I think some of the tension is right, as soon as we create a home space, things also start to fall apart. But right? as soon as you set everything up, things start to get messy, and you have to clean it up again, right? And okay. I think that that, that tension about the messiness of home, both like our fantasies at what home is going to be and our failures sometimes to be able to realize them, um, that's what's intriguing to me. And that, for me, is the queerness of home as a site.
0: Yeah, it's just such a playful title, and I really, I really love the playfulness of the title, and it, it has in it the very nature of the, um, the idea that we should kind of let our imaginations go wild about the concept. And so I thought that the playfulness of the title and the, even the, the cover photograph, which shows you know people playing Monopoly, right? So that this, you know, the idea of the playfulness is I think uh, very effective and uh, very interesting. So you also write that quote, home has been a crucial though contradictory space in LGBTQ life and politics. So can you talk a little bit about your thesis there, about how you examine the meaning of domesticity or the home?
1: You know, one of the questions that I I really grappled with and working on the book over many years was, I didn't want to fall into this binary of saying that home was somehow more important than public space or that, you know, I wanted to really understand what, what was important about queer home life in the history of LGBTQ people that might have been different. And I think that what's different, right, from histories of public queer life is that the challenge of navigating home, the challenge of creating home, put LGBTQ people kind of directly in conversation and in conflict with American norms of home and family life. And there's so many ways in, in U.S. history, especially after World War II, that the idea of home organizes what it means to belong, what it means to be a citizen. And so to center home, then, right, to center home as a crucial space in LGBTQ history is to ask how did LGBTQ people in their everyday lives work to navigate those norms of belonging that circulate around home and, and family? What I think is contradictory about it is that there are lots of ways that home is a really liberating space right there are lots of ways which home if you think of home as a site of control right a site that you have some relative control over some relative privacy you know I think for LGBTQ people it's often been a space where they're able to fully express themselves in a way they might not be able to outside of their home but home is also a site of isolation right home is also a site it can also be a site of constraint there are ways that the norms of home even as queer people and trans people are taking them up Still can become internalized and oppressive, and so that for me is the contradiction right? that to actually understand the ways that the constraints of home exist in tension with, but always in dialogue with the potential for liberation or self-expression.
0: Yeah, and you and you return a couple of times to the idea of cultural citizenship in the book. So, can you explain like the importance of cultural citizenship uh, to the story after World War
1: II? The, you know the. I think a lot, I've thought a lot about the term citizenship and what it's doing in the book. You know, the, because I think uh, in a legal sense, citizenship is a pretty you know is a pretty cut and clear you know clear and cut concept, right? Where you're either legally recognized as a citizen or you're not. Um, but there are also ways that there are also ways that cultural citizenship asks us to think about the ways that people actually experience belonging the ways they actually experience citizenship I'm thinking also about work by um, by Margot Kennedy about the straight you know her work the straight state thinking about how the government essentially constructs a form of second-class citizenship and of course I think we could think about that in African- American history as well that that you know citizenship is not equal for everyone of course and so cultural citizenship, allows us to think about experiences of belonging, experiences of citizenship. I think it also allows us to think about citizenship not only as a status conferred by the state, but also as something that is performed, that's something that is practiced, right? And that, you know, there, the way, and to ask sort of what are the ways that, that LGBTQ people are seeking to perform citizenship or seeking to find ways to belong, do they want to reject right citizenship as a construct um, and, and, and find new forms of belonging? Um, or do they want to really engage with it and, and figure out what does it mean to belong to the nation?
0: Yeah, I was, I kind of thought about it in terms of like the, the new uh, more robust LGBTQ culture that really comes to life after World War II. And, that, that, that also, I think, really blossoms in this time frame that you're, that you're examining, you know, that the, uh, that the, the greater uh, gay culture in, in society and participation, you know, and I, you know, I guess I think of citizenship, I think of like belonging and participating in, in the culture too. And it's, um, really, it's a, it's a really a, a fantastic way to interrogate those questions and, uh, and who is, you know, we always ask like in women's history, are women citizens and, you know, what does that mean? And, you know, over time, those, those concepts and those ideas really change. So,
1: you know, if you the, talked yeah. earlier, I'm sorry, go ahead. I mean, one of the concepts that was really crucial for me, um, was, um, was, a, a a work by Teresa Ann Murphy on the, on, domestic, on women's domestic citizenship in the 19th century, where she explores the way that women writers were trying to define domestic, domesticity and domestic space as a site of political engagement for themselves. What interested me in the book was trying to bring that concept of domestic citizenship into the post-World War II period and think about the ways that domesticity was no longer right, just a site of women's political engagement, but was becoming an important site of political expression, potentially for everyone.
0: Mm. Yeah, and and you already mentioned cookbooks, and I'm really interested in the historical significance of cookbooks, and I I use cookbooks in my women's history class um, as well. And so you talk in about your methodology, and you use a quote-unquote domestic archive, which includes cookbooks. So can you talk a little bit about the methodology that you employed?
1: The, you know, the methodology of the book was something that took a long time to develop. And I think it evolved out of a lot of the challenges of trying to track down this history. One of the things that I think a lot about with domesticity is right, you you know that domesticity is not prioritized right as as, um, as a site of, of history, right? Because it doesn't always show up in the archives in obvious ways. And so a lot of the work I was doing was going to going to sexuality archives, going to queer archives, and just talking to archivists about like where they thought I might find evidence of everyday home life. Um, and so that the idea of a domestic archive really emerged out of that searching to try to think about the domestic archive as an amalgam of everyday artifacts from domestic life, but also the feelings that we attach to them. And the, as I'm really drawing there on Anne Kivetkovic's book, um, an archive of, of feelings to think about both the material reality of home life but also the political and emotional meanings that are attached to it. So, you know, I, I try to define the domestic archive really broadly, you know, the book draws on a really wide range of sources um, some, you know there are, are a lot of photographs in the book. Some of them you know were are essentially orphaned objects, like photograph albums that were found years later by you know by collectors and archivists. You know where we know very little about the people pictured in them, but they're these beautiful portraits of 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 queer and trans life in the past. Um, some of it is you know taking you know taking records right from that we maybe. Um, and reading sort of them against the grain, or reading them for their domestic details. So I work a lot with social work records, right? But really try to mine them for thinking about everyday life and domestic life. the The common thread for me, though, through that, I guess, is to really try to really try to focus in on the kind of repetition and ordinariness of everyday life, right? That that it's not about always about like the big events. It's about it's about the structures that people are working to create for themselves, both the both the right the literal physical structures, but also the emotional structures.
0: Right, the everydayness is so important.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean the the book begins with the uh, passage um, that follows a uh, a film um, from called We Care, which was a uh, um, a film created by a group of a collective of of. of of women activists, archi- activist filmmakers called Wave in the 1980s and 90s, and it begins by following a woman living with AIDS named Marie, um, who is sort of leading us through her home. Right? Here's, here's the couch, here's, you know, look at the rug, here's where I keep my pills. And what interested me about that, why I wanted to start the book there, was the kind of that Kind of slow unfolding right and the kind of slow welcoming somebody into a space and noticing of all of these small details and that for me is emblematic of the work I try to do in the book of just really attending to all of those small details um to understand right that that these are not that these are key details for us for understanding the sign right to understanding this history and understanding its meaning for the people who lived in and, and for us now
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it was so that beginning section too, it's so intimate, like to, it's like to, to open yourself up to, to vulnerability too, right? This is where I live. It's like showing a part of yourself when you show somebody, this is my medication. This is my couch. This is my, where I sleep, you know, it's, there's a certain amount of like openness and uh, vulnerability, I guess, uh, about Mm -hmm. the, About that opening passage that's really very uh, that really draws you in, and I I thought that that was really lovely. And in the first section of the book, you also discuss same-sex marriage in the fifties. Many people might just assume that same-sex marriage didn't happen in the fifties. So, I love the I love the wedding photos. By the way, the the wedding photos in that chapter were so beautiful to me. Like I I thought oh this is. capturing such a happy the happy moment of a wedding and um so can you talk a little bit about how we can't just think about same-sex marriage as something that happened in 2015 but something that is really over 65 years older than that um so Mm. would you mind uh, talking a little bit about that section
1: yeah you know that that chapter on on gay and lesbian marriage in the fifties was really important, I think, to start with, because I think it it brings you, right, sort of right into the dominant domestic discourse of, of of post World War II life, where marriage is really being prioritized, and it asks essentially how are gay and lesbian people coping with this and dealing with this, and of course, right, there are um, some gay and lesbian people who are who are getting, you know, into or in straight marriages, and Lauren Gutterman's book. Um, um, her, her neighbor's wife really gets at some of the ways that lesbians within marriage, right, in, in heterosexual marriages were grappling with this. But I was interested here and in really thinking about how gay and lesbian couples were beginning to think about new types of home lives and new types of family structures for themselves. And the what you what I saw was that there from the late 40s into the 50s, right, that there were just so many. Gay and lesbian couples who were talking them, about themselves as married, right? That, that living together, choosing to live together, was for them a sign that they were essentially married. I mean, sometimes couples did also hold wedding ceremonies of the kind that we see in uh, that we see in the photographs in the book, but it was also just the fact of being, of living together, that people, they called it homosexual marriage. And I think that that was, that language is really important to think about, right? How they were trying to to stake a claim, right? To belonging, that they were again, sort of like other, they were like straight, their straight peers um, in having a married life, but with a difference. And the the other thing that happens though, in, in the, 50s and 60s is that the early gay rights movement um, also really fixates a bit, I'd say, on marriage, right? Because they see the political potential of integration around marriage, but it's challenging, right? Because they don't think, and they're never really thinking about that this is gonna be legally recognized. That's really not on the table for them because legal rights are so um, so not there yet um, at all. They're thinking though about essentially how to contain gay life, right? That if, um, if like bars are, and, and sort of what's the kind of, if bars are sort of threatened, if public life is sort of threatened by the police, how are they gonna contain gay sexuality and in, right into the home, right? And make it sort of safer essentially, right? And as a path towards greater belonging. It's, I think it's important to note too, that I think lesbians tend to, be, have, tend to have been, lesbian activists tend to have been more skeptical About marriage, it's really gay men who are really pushing this idea of of homosexual or homophile marriage as the ideal. And I think this, you know, this is all playing out at the same time that Betty Friedan and other feminists are beginning to question the patriarchal norms of marriage and home. But it is kind of it's a key way that gay and lesbian couples are trying to find a place for themselves in this post-war order. I mean, I think the other thing that's striking about those wedding photographs is that there's, there are, of course, really beautiful and moving. And, but there's also, I think, I think this is hard. Um, There's also uh, an underlying level of trauma actually underneath a lot of them. Um, You know, one of the, one of the, or one of the series of photographs in the books is from a wedding, a gay wedding in Philadelphia that was held in a couple's apartment. But the story behind that, those photographs is that, you know, the drugstore where the couple brought the photographs to be developed refused to release them because the, the policy was that they wouldn't release photographs that were obscene. You know, and and they're only obscene in as much as it's a gay couple getting married and and they're kissing right at the end of the ceremony and they're dancing to, and their friends are dancing together, right? So of course obscenity is also you know, up you know what obscenity is of course is is always an expression of power essentially. And it's only decades later that the daughter of the drugstore owner found these photographs I mean, they didn't want destroyed, he just kept them, right? Found these photographs and gave them um, to the One Archive and, and the Wilcox archive in Philadelphia to preserve them. But I think that that's like a story, a really sad story underneath that moment of beauty, right? To think again about the tension about, about both the striving for expression, striving for connection that's also being undermined by the society that people are living in.
0: Right, so that we got to enjoy their wedding pictures, but they never got to look at and enjoy their own wedding pictures.
1: It's really, I mean, it's really, it's really tragic if you really sit with it. I mean, and there, when when the photograph surfaced, there was a lot of effort to try to find the couple or try to find people, right, try to find who these photographs were. And as far as I know, as of yet, there's no evidence about who these men were. We don't even know their names. We just know they lived in Philadelphia. Hmm. So, I mean, it's, um, to think about people's, like the evidence of their lives being essentially stolen from them
0: mm-hmm.
1: is is I think really a tragic undercurrent in that, in that story.
0: Yeah, it really is. And, you know, while we're talking about marriage, I kept thinking about in women's history, when we talk about romantic friendship in the 1800s and a lot of the newer scholarship about women and Boston marriages, they call them, mm-hmm. these women who spent their whole lives together as a couple into the early 20th century. You know, recently, the some of the scholarship that we're reading about the suffrage leaders, like Molly Hay and Carrie Chapman Catt having this long, decades-long uh, marriage and being buried together next to each other and demanding to be buried next to each other and things like that. So, you know, we think about this maybe long history of lesbian households going back to the 1800s. So how would you connect then, like the the new, you know, the evidence and scholarship that we have about lesbian couples in romantic friendships and Boston marriages, connecting to what happens after World War II. You know, do you, do you consider that sort of like a continuity?
1: I think it's really important to for people to see that there is a very long history of relationships and domestic lives that we would now recognize as queer or trans or lesbian. I'm thinking about, um, Rachel Hope Cleave's book, Charity and Sylvia, looking at looking at essentially at early same-sex marriage um, in, the, in the 19th century, a couple that was together for decades and was recognized essentially as a couple um, by their friends and their family. I'm thinking about Jen Mannion's new book, Female Husbands, um, looking at the ways that couples were transing gender and trans and transforming marriage uh, in the 19th, in the 19th century. So I think that there's a great deal of continuity. I think what changes after World War II and why I start the story there is about both scale and significance. Because with the emergence of a gay and lesbian rights movement, right, and the emergence of gay and lesbian communities at a new scale in in cities right across the U.S., I think that there's the creation of a much greater social structure and social support for for lesbian marriage and, um, and for lesbian relationships, especially, you know, broadly and lesbian communities broadly, that's, that's made possible in a new way because the social structure is changing. I mean, and I'm thinking about one of the, um, there's one photograph of a lesbian couple in, in the book that includes photographs of their gay male friends wedding, right? And so you can think again about there's a community of, of people in Philadelphia Are actually attending each other's weddings, right? It's not just about the couple; it's about the social world around them, you know. But the other thing I think to say too is about the political significance that the I think that lesbian activists and lesbian people generally are beginning to see and understand their relationships as having a political meaning, right, and having um, a political potential that they are that those relationships are meaningful, those communities are meaningful, right? Because they are socially and emotionally sustaining, but they are also potentially politically um, and socially transformative. Mm.
0: I was just thinking about, um, and I, I don't know, you'll have to forgive me if you haven't seen this uh, Netflix show, but I don't know if you've seen, um, or it's an Amazon Prime show, I think, the um, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. You know, and there's really a wonderful lesbian character who's a very important character in the series. And she's such an interesting contrast to Mrs. Maisel, who is this Upper West Side, very ultra feminine, very dressed up all the time uh, woman. And the way that the lesbian in the show is portrayed, who was her manager for her comedy act, is... Uh, you know, lives in these very kind of uh, sad and I would, I would call her living in poverty. Mm-hmm. Uh, contrast to Mrs. Mazel's sort of affluence on the Upper West Side, contrasted with the lesbian character living in um, She lives sort of in a rooming house, and um, I don't know. I don't know if that ever, you know, when you think about how these, how she makes a home, and she goes to Mrs. Mazel's apartment, and Mrs. Mazel lives in like this doorman building with, you know, big apartment, and you know, I, uh, I think that I wonder if the writers of that show were making some kind of a statement, (laughs) or the random choice. I really,
1: I really love that show in lots of ways, but I think, but I think a lot of queer critics have criticized the show for, for not actually, you know, for sort of towing the line and really representing the character of Susie as a lesbian. It's only spoiler alert for people who haven't seen it. It's only (laughs) in this last season that it, that, they have actively acknowledged, right, that Susie is a lesbian, but that it, but there's no, but she doesn't have a romantic storyline. There are lots of other characters who have a romantic storyline in the book, and she, in the, in the film, and she, in, sorry, in the, in the series, and she really doesn't have one. And I think mm-hmm. that there's a kind of, um, I think, and I think what you're saying too, it's interesting how, so her, she lives in a kind of, you know, this like kind of bohemian um, apartment in Greenwich Village, and it's actually her male friend, who you from she knows from the comedy club, who comes and redecorates it all for her. So it, I think it plays out a lot of stereotypes too about mm. right, that that a queer woman is not going to know how to decorate her own apartment, oh. right, And doesn't and doesn't have a meaningful home life of her own. The meaningful right. home life is for everybody else, right? It's mm. um, but and I think that you know I think in some ways that that is replaying kind of one of the, one of the tropes or stereotypes that, that my book is actually trying to challenge.
0: Right, right, sure. No, I agree, I agree. It's, um, and they, you know, and they do have, you know, created this Susie character is sort of, uh, I would say cranky and a little bit unhappy and uh, disagreeable uh, in a lot and of ways too.
1: And that's, you know, but, but that was also the representation of queer people in general in the 50s and 60s, right? In popular culture was often to present queer people as being lonely, as being sad, as being yeah. isolated, right? We don't get to see Susie having a community, right? And I mean, it's striking to say that because I think that it's it's one thing I think about the show that is in fact quite regressive, yeah. um, right? That it, it, it I think it's, and I think it's in part because the, the show is so, indebted in some ways to nostalgia for the 50s Mm and 60s that it can't see the ways that some of the tropes that it's nostalgic for are were actually really missing what was what was going on for for real gay and lesbian people
0: right no yeah it's 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 a it's a very good point um and you know i think that sometimes hollywood wants a pat on the back whenever they include a gay character they want like Oh, Disney included a gay character. You know, they want, you know, some kind of a parade, right? They want to be praised for, uh, for being inclusive, you know, but yeah, miss the, miss the boat there <laughs> uh, on that one, but uh, very interesting. And I, I really love the section of the book about Lou Ran Hogan and the gay cookbook. So, can you talk a little bit? Who was Lou Rand Hogan, and how was his story sort of an important other section um, yeah. of your story? Yeah.
1: So, Lou Rand Hogan was a, um, a a cook, a chef, you know, who write a writer who lived in San Francisco in the fifties and sixties. Um, he actually grew up in California, with you know, living with his mother um, and his grandmother, and. You know, his father worked overseas um, and eventually abandoned his his mother. And he was sort of this figure who, in many ways, sort of tr- following Lou Randhogan's story helps us to really follow the story of queer life in the 20th century. He finds really a queer community first in the theater. He becomes a steward on uh, on cruise ships in the 1930s. You know, and finds that all of these all of these cruise ships actually are full of of gay men working on them. And that becomes for him this kind of entry into a kind of queer world, a really campy queer world that then he he brings right into his writing. He first writes a book published in 1960 um, called The Gay Detective, which is, a, is really one of the first gay detective novels. That's kind of a tour of gay life in San Francisco. And he follows that up in 1965 with a book called The Gay Cookbook that, is really the first expli- explicitly gay cookbook. Of course, there are other gay chefs who are writing cookbooks where they're not acknowledging they're gay. This is a gay cookbook written by a gay chef, right, who is you know, who is writing for a gay audience. So, so there's though, one of the mysteries for me, and this I'll say too is the first chapter of the book that I wrote, one of the mysteries for me was essentially how did this book exist in 1965 at all, um, that, you know, it was a book that was publicized in, in the New York Times, it was published by a mainstream press, it was, you know, written about in, it was written about in Time Magazine, you know, it was, it was, there was radio, you know, there, was, there were radio interviews about it, right, it was not hidden in any way, and so I was fascinated by, like, how did this gay cookbook book get through? One of the, one of the keys to this is it's it's published a year after Susan Sontag publishes her essay on camp, um, and so there's a fascination with with camp and with gay men's camp humor, that right that Hogan sort of is actually able to capitalize on, and and that the publisher Sherborne Press is also really excited I think to capitalize upon, but though. The work of it, right, when what I think is ultimately important about the book is the ways that it disrupted um, and challenged, it challenged representations of what gay life looked like. I mean, and this actually very much builds on what we were just talking about, because so many of the representations of gay life in the 1950s and 60s, especially actually gay male life tended to portray this kind of, um, this kind of dark, like lonely life, like people sort of in dark bars, sort of looking at cruising the streets. And that was, you know, and, you know, bars and cruising the street was a really important part of queer life for a lot of people that was really meaningful. Um, but it was always represented as in, in a negative. And what Hogan wanted to do, and some of that world, I think Hogan represents in the gay detective, right? And sort of re and revalue some of that work. The gay cookbook, I think is more radical in the ways that it Moves us into the queer home, and represents represents a gay home life where people have a sense of meaning, right? Where they have a sense of connection. Whether it's as, you know Hogan is thinking about gay men entertaining other gay men, both for parties or if they have you are bringing someone home, right? And, and they stay over, right? If you're, if you're lucky enough to have someone over and they stay over, like what are you going to make them for breakfast the next day? And bringing the bringing both. Gay audience and a mainstream audience into that queer home, and showing this as a site of joy, in a way that I think was really was really distinct and different. And again, it's written for. Two, I mean, the voice is for a gay audience. The it's camp humor, it's double entendres are really for a gay audience. But it was published in the mainstream press that was big, that was with the expectation that that the mainstream would also be interested in, in this book.
0: Do you think the mainstream got it? or do you think that some, it just went over some people's heads?
1: You know, There are a lot of like really specific, um, you know, there are a lot of really specific gay double entendres like chicken to refer to like a young man, right? That I think probably a lot of straight audiences didn't get. I think in some ways though, Hogan is, was certainly aware of that, where he, in some his later writing, he later writes a, a cooking column called Auntie Lou Cooks for The Advocate, the same advocate, um, or the, a newspaper that became now the glossy magazine, The Advocate. And there he's a little bit raunchier, a little bit um, a little bit more sexual than in the gay cookbook. So I think he's, he is modulating his camp humor a little bit for a mainstream audience. I think that, you know, there was also a way that camp humor made gay people safe, um, right? Because it made gay people funny, it, it integrated gay people right into the scene in a way that complemented rather than threatened the straight home, um, and I think Hogan is thinking about is thinking about how to do that, but also really wanting to portray to gay readers that home can be a site of meaning.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a it's a really entertaining section of the book because of his, his life story and his sense of humor and his playfulness with the recipes and the a little asides in the recipes um, are really, I thought were really, really funny. And, uh, you know, really, I think talk about it. That's why I was asking you about this idea. Does it go over some people's heads, you know, that people reading the New York Times, reading the review in the New York Times and thinking, oh yeah, I'm gonna get this get this this cookbook. Um, and, you know, maybe not getting those jokes. You know? <laughs> At
1: I all. Think, I think, I think, you know, the very fact that it had gay in the title, right? Yeah. Gay was still essentially a code word, right? It wasn't yet later by the gay liberation movement, gay becomes like an identity label, but gay is still in 65, still something of a code word yeah. for, for queerness. And so um, it's certainly it's playing on this moment, right? Where some people are kind of becoming in the know. Um, and, you know, it's also a moment I would just say two other things about it. I think it's also a moment when cookbooks are changing. Um, there's books like Peg Bracken's "I Hate to Cookbook," um, right? There's there are. Uh, um,
0: I mean, even the, the mastering the mastering the art of French cooking comes out about the same time, right?
1: Right. This is just when you know ju- when Julia Child is on you know is is on television for the first time cooking is changing and ideas about cooking are changing. And it's also a moment too, I think, I mean, some of this also has to do with money that I think that the publishers are realizing that there is a gay audience. They're not, you know, I think they're happy if a mainstream audience goes for it, but they also see that that there's a gay audience that's actually eager to see themselves represented and to have their own consumer culture. Um, and also, you know, obscenity laws are changing so that a gay cookbook becomes possible.
0: Mm-hmm, sure. And you know, the, the, when you look at um, the life of someone like Julia Child, her impact on American society by publishing, Mastering the Art of French Cooking is is essentially changing the way America eats and changing the, the whole way that food, like you, you mentioned food earlier um, when you were talking about, you know, your class with Nancy Cot, <laughs> uh, That um, when you when you really examine people like Julia Child and Jacques Pepin, when he comes from France, you know that he was sort of appalled at how Americans ate. And so, you know, it's a it's such a rich area of understanding how home changes, how American family is changing, how middle class. Notions of middle class life are changing through food and the cookbooks that people start using, and how they entertain their friends. And I think,
1: and I think it's, I just think, I think it's really meaningful the ways that Hogan was trying to claim cooking and claiming domesticity for queer people.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you also kind of to move on to something else in your uh, in the book about gay communes. So you know, that was a really interesting chapter about re kind of reinventing the household as a looking at it through a commune. So can you talk a little bit about the the gay communes in, in that chapter?
1: You know, I just to back up to say in general, you know, one of the ways that the book is structured is I really looked for sort of centers of gravity, right? The book moves chronologically. Um, but I really tried to find sort of where was the center of gravity for conversations about domesticity in any one moment. And when I started to turn to the gay liberation movement and lesbian feminism in the 70s, you know, a lot of that discussion about the meaning of home, the meaning of family, right, and the practices, right, were really sort of so really condensing right around communal living. Right. And there was a, you know, of course, the 60s and 70s are a moment when lots of people. Are forming communes for lots of different political reasons, social reasons. A lot of people see communes as a way of altering the American family and certainly um, gay men and lesbians are part of that movement. But it also has different meanings for for gay men and lesbians that I think are really important to draw out. For a lot of lesbians and the kind of lesbian feminist movement, you know, there begins to be a call for creating, you know, living situations or, or, or lesbian lands right away from cities out of an idea that if lesbians were going and women were going to challenge the patriarchy that they needed to start with one of patriarchy's kind of major structures, which was the home and the family and the ways that home family and marriage had oppressed women. And so they needed to get away from men and needed to, you know, and create separate women's communes, separate lesbian lands to be able to reinvent themselves and reinvent their lives. Um, And gay men are actually looking to lesbian feminist theory and activism and drawing inspiration from them. And they are also thinking that one of the problems that gay men are facing are, their isolation, and that gay communes are going to be a way of solving some of that, right? Of of creating more communal living situations, but also to challenge some of the masculine norms that gay men felt themselves not to fit with, or maybe were internalizing in ways that they wanted to exercise. Um, and the there also were ways a lot of that. A lot of the gay male communes also were really engaged in anti racist activism because there's a, a major alliance early on between the gay liberation movement and the Black Panther movement. And so in DC and Boston, you begin to see the emergence of, of multiracial gay communes that are really actively working to challenge racism, both inside and outside of queer communities. And again, there's an understanding that allowing people to create new kinds of family structure, new types of household structures has a political potential both for people individually, but for the larger communities that they see themselves engaging with, Mm. right?
0: Yeah, that's great. And so you talk also in the next chapter about lesbian architecture. Can you describe a little bit about what you, how you define lesbian architecture?
1: So the Chapter on lesbian architecture really centers on um, one architect named Phyllis Berkby, who, you know, who grew up in the 40s and 50s and then moved to New York in the in 1960s, and you know, and talks about always having an interest in architecture from the very time she was a very young child, but being told essentially that architecture was not a field for women. Um, and you know, she taught uh, all uh, the Chapter draws a lot on Berkby's papers at, at the Smith College, um, Sophia Smith Collections. Um, and, you know, her, she details being at um, the University of North Carolina Women's College in the 1950s. And she talks up with the same type of in her diaries, she talks about um I don't know, with the same type of tension and secrecy, both her efforts to Engage with architecture, like she talks about sneaking off the library to look at architectural journals, and also sneaking off to meet the one lesbian couple, like on campus, right to to go to their house and learn more about lesbian life. And so these are very wedded for her, right? The ways that that women's lives are constrained and the way that lesbian life is constrained are very connected for her. By the late by the early '70s, she's gone to you know yet. School of Architecture at Yale. She's been working for a kind of large up-and-coming architecture firm, but she also is beginning to engage in a lot of lesbian feminist activists. She joins an early lesbian feminist consciousness raising group, and that really inspires her to, she leaves her, you know, her stable job at this male-owned architectural firm and tries to open her own practice, but she also starts running these workshops where she started with just, friends, other lesbian friends, asking people to draw their fantasy environments, right? To literally like start with a blank sheet of paper and draw the environment that your living space, your dwelling space that would be ideal for you. And for Berkby, that was a way of getting people to challenge the patriarchal norms that actually structured the built environment. And to open up a possibility of what she was calling a woman identified or lesbian architecture, right? Of trying to create an architecture that was actually designed around women's needs and desires rather than those that had been determined by men.
0: Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the things that's really striking in her biography is kind of harkens back to what you said earlier about the the wedding photos that are never uh, that are developed but are never turned over to the couple she's expelled from school for being a lesbian she's expelled from the undergraduate program it actually made me wonder I was like oh so she goes to Cooper Union to finish I thought that maybe that yeah. was does she does she actually finish her BA before she goes to Yale I know? could never
1: I could never figure out all of the details of this I mean she Yeah. Gets- she, you know, it's what's clear is also, it's clear that lots of women in the women's college were having lesbian relationships. Uh-huh. Um, she says that she was just too brazen about it,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: that's why she is thrown out and 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 sent back home. Um, and but well, it, she gets it's never... caught,
0: right? She gets caught she kissing gets... a woman. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, so... and, it,
1: and she, you know, and um, I don't know. I mean, she somehow. I'm not. I never quite figured out how mm-hmm. she. Got right. How she, she goes to Cooper Union. She eventually gets to the Yale School of Architecture. I was never quite able to figure out, like how she ever finished her bachelor's degree. Right. Um, you know, but she is fighting a lot of both structural oppression and a lot of psychological oppression. And right. she really credits lesbian feminism as this kind of second, o- this is a reawakening for her, right, because um, of just how oppressive all of these environments were for her. You know, she starts yeah. with the Yale School of Architecture as being a space where she was, you know, um, a v- among a very small number of women in the program, mm-hmm. and where everybody doubted that she could do this work. And so I think that the her, her the lesbian architecture project really came out of a place of, of a great deal of pain, mm-hmm. um, but also real passion and a real desire to change the world that she was living in.
0: Yeah. and And she's a reflection of the world she's living in, isn't she? I mean, because of the era she's living in, she's representing sort of the bigger struggle that's kind of going on in a lot of households and on a lot of places in america at that time right to of women even like when you watch like the biography of ruth bader ginsburg for example she's at harvard and she's in law school and uh she can't get a job after she graduates right and so You know what? I, you know, yeah, yeah. go ahead. I mean, I I was gonna, but you know what? I just wanted to kind of wrap around the idea also that when she becomes an architect, that she has a hard time getting work, right? She gets, she, as when she opens her own architectural firm or her own business, she doesn't get a lot of commissions, or a lot of the commissions that she does get are not realized or not built. Um, So, that was those were two things you mentioned about her life that harken back to that sort of bittersweetness and tragedy in some of these stories of like the couple that doesn't get their their wedding photos and Phyllis Bixby uh, Berksby who has you know gets expelled from women's college and by the way I went to a women's college and there was a lot a lot of women were other women at the college um, even when I was there and Married men later. A lot of them went and married men after graduation. But um that she seems to have this so much to offer in the, her story. But again, there's that the the little bit of the sadness underneath a lot of what you say. I felt like yeah. I you
1: know I, you know, I, I really see the story of Louren Hogan and the story of Phyllis Brookby as kind of a pair in the book mm. because they're the there are two people in the book whose stories I think because they lived a long time and they've moved around a lot their stories tell us I think about a lot about the larger trajectories of of gay and lesbian culture at this moment and I, I think that it's really important with Berkby right that she as you're mentioning right she decides she's gonna she's gonna break out and create her own firm um, and she has all of these ideas but but She's not able to get the commissions. You know, there are a couple of lesbian couples that commission her. Um, She builds one house out in East Hampton um, on Long Island. She builds an art studio for um, for an artist on Long Island, right? That, but she doesn't get a lot of work. And I think that that's also because a lot of the women that she was, you know, that were in her world didn't have money, right, to commission right someone to build their home. This is the same time that you know, that a lot of gay men are are building new modern constructions, right, on, in the pines on Fire Island, right, and Horace Gifford, um, as, you know, as um, Horace Gifford, the architect Horace Gifford, is building a lot of these modern homes. She doesn't, you know, she doesn't have a social world that has the economic resources to do that. And I think that also tells us a lot about, of course, women's social and economic position in the 1970s, that there isn't an economic structure to support the work that she's doing. You know, she eventually becomes a teacher. She does a lot of teaching. She, I mean, to me, she also ends up, as fast, she ends up creating a lot, doing a lot of government work of creating supportive living for people, um, for, for people with mental disabilities. She does a lot of interesting work, but it's not the work I think that she was dreaming of. You know, for me, that's also one of the, one, this is also a really important intervention for me in the book is that, so much of the way that we talk about history is about, is through the lens of success. And one of the things I think that actually looking at domesticity helps us to see is, is the value of fantasy. That just because Burpee didn't get to build all the fantasy homes that she was imagining, doesn't mean those fantasies were not valuable and are important for us as historians to look at. Just because the communes didn't last forever doesn't mean that that the the attempt isn't significant, right? That the, it's both about that moment of realization, right? And also the moment of of fantasy, Um, you know, it gets messy, right? It gets messy quickly, Um, it doesn't, or or things fail, but the attempts and the fantasies really matter.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and this is actually, I wrote a quote down that I really love from page 120, quote, Birkby's environmental fantasy project similarly sought to give women space to explore a utopic future, to make space for unspoken and unspeakable desires and imagine new ways of organizing self, space, and community free of the conventional constraint of the man-made work environment. And yeah, so she, you know, the the, uh, the fact that she's, She's exceptional, but she's not, right? So like you said, like she's like a regular person in the same way that Lou Rand Hogan is a regular person. Um, I think, like you said, you know, history books tend to lean too heavily on notable famous people and ignore too often the story that really is the story of us. Well,
1: and I think there's, and there's a reason that architects don't know that, and most people don't know the name Phyllis Brookby, right, because she didn't leave, you know, big buildings or big, you know, big commissions behind for us to remember her by, but her story actually is so revealing about the, the about how lesbian life was and wasn't changing um, in the 1960s and 70s.
0: And her, and the, the photographs that you include of the the studio and the home that she designed are are fantastic. You know, I was well, so glad that, yeah. to see them. You know, when you read about it, and then you see the f- photograph on the next page. I was like, oh, this is this is beautiful. You know, so it, that seeing that what she did create uh, also you know makes her come to life uh, as well. Yeah,
1: the the book is also a lot of, about a lot of the potential that is that is destroyed right by the constraints that people actually have to engage with
0: and p- prejudices yeah. you know as well you know and so chapter 5 you talk about homelessness um so how do activists address homelessness in the lgbtq community
1: so, so the chapter on homelessness came out in part of some of the work that i was doing on on Gay liberation, especially where a lot of gay liberation activists, right, in cities like San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York are beginning to realize that there are all of these young, queer, and trans people who are moving to cities but actually don't have any supportive home environment, right? That they're getting people are getting pushed out of their home, they're running away from home, and they're not, and they don't have us, and they don't have a stable housing situation. And so activists begin to try to cr- essentially take some of the ideas about communal living, but adapt them into essentially social service, I mean, programs for queer and trans homeless youth. And so one of them in the book that I, I spent a lot of time with is a, is a program called Survival House, which was founded in San Francisco in in the mid seventies by an activist named Effie Mitchell. Um, and the, you know, Survival House was primarily, you know, it, it was a, it was primarily Queer, trans, and and, um, gay, gay, lesbian, and trans people living there, right? Um, And um, about half were people of color, right? And it is a story that I think we have, that historians have missed, Um, even though there was, you know, there was a documentary that was made about it. There Mm are photographs of it. There are lots of records about it. But I think it, for me, the story of Survival House and the larger kind of shelter movement, as I call it, in this period. Is also about a shift that's beginning to happen in the '70s, where queer people are beginning to see the government actually as a potential ally, mm-hmm. right? Because a lot of the story of, um, a lot of the story of, of gay and lesbian domesticity and trans domesticity in the '50s is about hiding right from mm-hmm. the state, about privacy, about maintaining privacy, not wanting the state to be involved, right? Gay and lesbian couples want to be married, but they don't actually want the state to recognize them. Right. They, they want the semblance of married life because it, it, it gives a sense of belonging, but they're not thinking the state's gonna come along. Right? The state is, is, is policing them. Right? And what changes with, with programs like Survival House is that they're, they're beginning to apply to cities and state governments for money, right? to help fund these programs. They're seeing that they, have, um, that they have social and economic needs that they think are deserving to be met by city and state governments as you know as much as anyone else. and that's a real shift. The problem I think is that trying to woo like state and city funders to support those programs also means that those activists often end up reiterating certain types of norms about home life right around mm. productivity right about about citizenship, about you know, there's a lot of lot of work programs that are right that are engaged in, in the in the home in the shelters and, and group homes. That you know becomes a, again. This for me is also a, again a, uh, another moment of both liberation and constraint, like coexisting. You know, they want to create a sense of home for young people, um, but they're also constrained by the system and constrained by the by the norms that they're they're working within. Um, because people can't actually stay there forever because the need is too great. Um, sim- I also look similarly at a program in Philadelphia um, called Araman House that was created by an early gay um, and les- early LGBTQ counseling center in Philadelphia. Um, Araman House, in that case, actually, the government, um, Immigration Services, came to the counseling service and asked them to help set up a group home for Cuban youth um, queer and trans cuban youth who were had been expelled from cuba as part of the mariel boatlift right and so again it's it's not just that it's not just that the queer activists are seeing seeing the government as a potential ally it's also the government is beginning to see lgbtq people as potential allies and i think that's a major shift right that both in recognizing the significance of home but also in, in understanding sort of how LGBTQ activists and the state might come together.
0: Mm, Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. I kept thinking about my own students and so many of my own students are when they are honest about their sexuality with their parents are still getting kicked out of their homes, even in 2022. And so, you know, this is, as a history, but also I, it really struck me when I read my students' emails that share some of the struggles that they're having with homelessness and with being expelled from their family home, their parents' homes for their sexuality, um, that this is, you know, still it's like, it's really such a persistent issue. But I feel and like, yeah. and then, don't you think like the state has become less less is becoming less uh, a partner.
1: Well, I think that's a tension. I mean, I think that, um, you know, now I think there, there are lots of programs throughout the country, you know, working to help queer and trans youth, you know, there, but there's a it's part of the, you know, for me, part of what I wanted to do in the chapter is show what a long story this is, but that it happens in a lot of um, it happens sort of sporadically, right? Because Survival House initially gets funding, but then that funding gets taken away. right experiment mm-hmm. House similarly they get funding and then that funding gets taken away. Mm-hmm. And so it's not a it's not a linear trajectory to where we are now, even though the needs actually, you know, for queer and trans youth have remained, I think um, really painfully consistent. the you know, but the other piece of this is that I think that the, government funding of, of, of services for homeless and unhoused youth in general is always on the cutting mm-hmm. block, you know, and so there's a, it's, I think, important to see that this is, a you know, a long-standing development, um, but we're also in a moment when so much is being privatized, and there's so much expectation that, you know, this is all going to happen through private fundraising, and this, and the government doesn't have a responsibility for this, and I, I think that that's I guess attention tension um, for both for activists and you know people in government to to think about right? again what are the, citizenship is not just about right the obligations of the citizen, it's also about the obligations of the state to its citizens and,
0: and to people who aren't
1: citizens. Yes, technically in a legal sense.
0: Right. And you know, when you talk about HIV AIDS and that the history. Of HIV/AIDS and the AIDS crisis has been overlooked by history, out and how it was playing out in people's homes. Um, so, can you talk about how the HIV/AIDS crisis was playing out in people's homes?
1: You know, what, I, one of the one of the ways I think in the, that the history of HIV/AIDS has especially been narrated um, and represented in the, especially in the last. Five to ten years has actually been through the history of, of ACT UP, all right, and sort of direct action groups that that were really critical in, in I think in in mobilizing queer communities, right, and changing um, changing right sort of the way that government was both treating and talking about people with HIV/AIDS and expanding the gov- you know, the, the culture sense of of who was impacted by HIV. But from the very beginning, right act up isn't created isn't formed until 1987. But from the very beginning of you know the recognition of HIV/AIDS in 1981, there is there are already attempts right to provide caregiving programs and to go into people's homes to provide support for people living with HIV and AIDS right at the very beginning that I think that we haven't fully reckoned with historically. Um, and so the chapter focuses on a sort of two programs that emerged out of gay men's health crisis in New York. Um, one of them was the Buddy program, which was a volunteer caregiving program that GMHC set up, where somebody with living with AIDS would be paired with a volunteer caregiver who would just come over and do kind of everyday things like them, helping them to cook, do grocery shopping, helping them to clean, right? ordinary things that somebody who's living with an illness may not be able to do. Um, but also, you know, there's something also instrumental about doing that work too, because it's not just about cooking and cleaning, right? It's also about, about care and companionship, that that becomes a, give people permission to enter into people's homes and, and provide support in ways that they might otherwise feel ashamed about needing or asking for. Mm. And the buddy program that GMHC starts becomes a model for many other programs like it all across the country. And it's interesting because it's happening in, in cities across the country, it's happening in suburbs. And one of the reasons it's so reproducible is because it, you don't need a lot of money, you just need people. Um, and it's something that, you know, it's important to recognize the flip side of that is that Volunteers are doing this because the government is doing nothing, right? Mm-hmm. It's also a need. You know, the government in 1982, 1983 in New York is doing very little, mm-hmm. but the government's doing even less for, for, for longer, right, in in other cities and other suburbs. And so the programs persist well into the, into the 90s and early 2000s. Um, the other program, GMHC program, I look at in the book was a, was a, a public access TV program called Living with AIDS that was created by a group of video activists within within GMHC, um, actually Jean Carlomasto. Um, and what was interesting to me there was to look at the ways that Living with AIDS was both br- literally broadcasting um, Living with AIDS right into people's homes, um, but also representing home back to people. And it was, a, I think it kind of Using television as a kind of community building, right? And again, creating a new sense of empathy for people and a new sense of it being able to relate. Um, and and thinking about expanding, again, who we think of as, or who people were thinking of at the time as living with HIV/AIDS. Um, one of the one of the to me one of the big shifts that happens around those programs is a move towards what I call coalitional intimacy, mm-hmm. where you know people are paired in the buddy program across identity differences, right? So there are increasingly a lot of people of color who are asking for volunteers, as there are a lot of, um, increasingly, GMHC by the 1990s is trying to recruit more people of color to act as volunteers. Um, You have a lot of women paired with men um, doing that work that again is challenging people's ideas of who the queer community is. Um, Similarly, living with AIDS, really works to bring in a wide range of voices and experiences. Um, the major uh, filmmaker who I follow in that chapter is an African American filmmaker named Juanita Schapansky, who really presents really in in for the first time lives of 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 queer black people living with HIV AIDS to a general audience. There's a beautiful film
0: mm. um,
1: on from the show called Two Men and a Baby about a gay black couple. That that adopt the that adopt the son of one of their siblings who has passed, um, and you know, and that had everything to do with with Juanita Schapansky's own community, and and also the effort right to bring that story right to others, mm. right to change people's sense of who the queer community was um, by changing our sense of who the community impacted by HIV AIDS was. Yeah,
0: and it also teaches that sense of compassion and humanity that yeah. to humanize. And, um, you know, recently there's, there's been some um, reporting here in New York area about um, Ed Koch because mm. Ed Koch was the mayor of New York and during the AIDS crisis, uh, but he was also a closeted gay man. Who did not advocate strongly for HIV intervention and help uh, to the to people suffering with HIV/AIDS, and there's he's really getting um, I think a, a sort of a hist- a kind of a look at right now and criticism for the way he was not. Willing to stand up for HIV/AIDS, even if he wanted to remain a closeted gay man. Did you have any any uh, thoughts? Well, I th- that?
1: yeah, I mean, I think I think a lot of activists in ACT UP suspected that at the time, right, and and had a sense that also that he was afraid of being, you know, he wasn't sure that he would have a political career as an out gay man, and also I think saw like really tackling AIDS as potentially outing him, right? Mm-hmm. Or maybe allow people to sort of, to, I mean, to more directly raise that question. Um, and you know, I, I think the, again, it's important to think about, right? That a lot of this activist work was, was unlike the shelters, right? Was happening privately, was among volunteers, right? The funding is not coming from, at the beginning at least from the government. Right? That doesn't really start to happen until, The 90s that more government funding is beginning to go into HIV AIDS care work right there's more by you know there's um and that you know and so the it's I think looking back from where we are now and sort of Mm. thinking about the last two years around COVID I mean it only becomes more striking just how incredibly slowly the government right at all levels local state federal work to do anything right Mm -hmm. to really intervene with with the gravity that was needed, and so I think, um, to me, it's significant that one of the major sites, right, that that queer activists needed to go into, right, to to provide care and transformation, was in home spaces because um, because people weren't necessarily going to get that fully in in, in their in the public world that it needed to be in people's homes. And also because of the impacts of shame and stigma that kept people isolated. Mm -hmm. And that again, for me is about that contradiction of home, right, it is a a site of activism, but it was also a site of isolation and that's precisely why the activism needed to go there.
0: Mm. yeah, very true. Well, I want to thank Dr. Steven Veter for joining me on the show today and for a great discussion of his new book, The Queerness of Home, Gender, Sexuality, and Politics of Domesticity After World War II, published by University of Chicago Press. Until next time on New Books in Women's History, this is Jane Semeca. Keep reading.